A place for confession. That's the topic today on Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. And thanks so much for joining us for some gospel-centered good news. If you're just joining in, we're in a series about historic Christian worship called The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. God being the gift giver and believers being the gathered guests. All have sinned, right? And how we respond to hearing God's word is everything. Do we turn away or get on our knees and confess? Let's talk more about this response. Here's John with the message called A Place for Confession, Part 2. Second, why do we kneel? Because as believers, we belong to God, both body and soul. Question one of the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, worship is not a function simply of the mouth, but of the whole body. Worship doesn't merely involve spiritual, verbal, and mental acts. It involves physical acts. You come and you participate the whole time. Historic Christian worship is both participatory and is whole-bodied. It consists of inward and outward forms of worship. We are whole people made by a holy God, and our worship of him ought to acknowledge this reality. And to kneel is, listen, to worship through prayer. The historic worship practices of the church engage the whole person intentionally. Why? Because God desires the worship of all who we are since we belong to him body and soul. Both the words we speak and the acts we perform are forms of communication that shape and form us in powerful ways. It is the way we are made in our discipleship. Ceremony refers to the actions in the liturgy. Every movement, sitting, standing, kneeling, is significant. And so I was thinking about this, and I was thinking how ironic that evangelicals, right, most of us are that, who find kneeling in confession quite foreign or perhaps cringe at it and quite arresting, that I'm going to kneel and confess my sin like this, and probably this is a little uncomfortable, Because many of these ceremonies, many of these liturgical actions that you have performed your whole life in church are simply learned by imitation over the years, and seldom does anyone ever stop and ask, why do I do these things in church, right? Let me give you some examples. You will find in the majority of evangelical churches where congregants raise their hands in worship. Many of us did that today. Nothing wrong with it. Let them go. Let them fly, right? (laughs) Lift them up. That's a liturgical ceremony. That's a physical action in worship. Clapping of the hands. Bowing your head and closing your eyes to pray, not only in church, but around the dinner table. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Everybody, close your eyes, right? Close those eyes. (laughs) You can't pray unless you close your eyes. That's a liturgical form of worship. That's a physical act of worship. Holding a hymnal. It's a physical liturgical form of worship. It's a ceremony. Some people, and we do this, we sit. You are doing now what? You are sitting and being addressed by a foolish preacher, right? (laughs) The foolishness of preaching, Paul says, is the means by which the Holy Spirit resurrects hearts from the dead. 
We stand. What is standing? Standing in worship in the scriptures is a public visible sign of resurrection. When I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, this liturgical physical action took place every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday after the business meeting when everybody fought, regardless if the gospel was given. You know it. Walk down the aisle to ironically kneel at the altar to rededicate your life. But yet when they're called to confess their sins and kneeling, oh, we don't do that. That's Roman Catholic. And yet they do it every single week when they come down in the aisle and kneel at the altar to rededicate their life, which is Roman Catholicism. It's called penance. Some people dance. Some people jump. Some people shout. Those are physical actions, liturgical forms of worship. But when called to kneel in confession, you cringe at it, even though the Bible calls us to do it, and even though many modern worship songs sing about you doing it, and you never do it. You just sing it. So clearly the spoken word in worship is central and primary. The spoken word, that is the chief means of grace. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. But however, in addition to the spoken word in worship, there is an inherent connection between kneeling and worshiping. That which we do with our bodies, actions as well as words are means of communication, and it is powerful communication. I want you to listen to this Anglican priest He says, we are all, of course, accustomed to this business of gestures and movements carrying a weight of significance, a kiss, a handshake, a wave, a victory march. These are all examples of this sort of thing. You do something. Merely talking about things does not always suffice. The Christian liturgy is a glorious unfurling of ceremony, of significant movement, being brought to the highest service of all, namely the worship of God. The liturgy is an enactment in which the church proclaims the whole gospel drama. Every celebration of the liturgy unfolds the entire drama of salvation. It is well for us to remember that actions as well as words are means of communicating significance. Many churches in Renaissance Europe and then in America decided to limit themselves in their worship to verbal methods of expression as though words alone are true vehicles of meaning. No human being ever lives on this principle in any other realm of experience, and it would seem to be something of a pity to huddle worship into this sort of limitation. He is so spot on. Here's a third reason why we kneel in worship. The position of our bodies can and should match the spiritual realities and attitudes of our hearts. There are two kinds of worship, one outward and physical, and one inward and spiritual. Inwardly, we bow our knees with our hearts and confess Jesus as Lord, and then outwardly, we demonstrate our inward worship by kneeling with the body. Here's a fourth reason we kneel. 
Kneeling is the intentional decision of the believer to humble himself before a holy God and to honor him not only verbally, but also physically. To kneel is to submit. It is an outward display of humility and reverence. To kneel is to worship and recognize that the triune God is king and we are not. Martin Luther, writing about this in the liturgy, he says, Worship is to bow the head, bend the body, fall on the knees, prostrate oneself, and so forth. And to do such things as a sign and acknowledgement of an authority and power. Just as people bow in silence before secular princes and lords, such outward adoration is what the scriptures really mean by worship. We read in the scriptures that worship, adoration, is rendered outwardly both to God and to kings without distinction, just as bowing and kneeling are still rendered outwardly both to God and to men. From this understanding of outward worship, you will also understand what Christ meant by true spiritual worship. It is the adoration or bowing of the heart so that from the bottom of your heart, you thereby show and confess yourself to be his subordinate creature. Where worship is offered from the heart, there follows quite properly also the outward bowing, bending, kneeling, and adoration with the body. So kneeling before God puts us in the perfect position to be served by our triune God, which is what this service is all about. It is the very purpose for why we come to corporate worship every Lord's Day. Why do we gather every Lord's Day as a church? Because Jesus is present not only as our Lord, but as our servant to serve us. That's why we come. And so opening up ourselves in such a position of humble reception is a significant action. It is a significant, powerfully communicating action in worship. Kneeling is faith's posture before our all-sufficient, sovereign, and gracious God. So that's why we do it. We're not making this up. We're just trying to faithfully excavate what the church has done for centuries and centuries and centuries and just faithfully communicate it. What does the practice of confession and corporate worship communicate? What does the liturgy teach us through the confession of sin? And how does a corporate confession shape and form and make our discipleship? When we do confession of sin over and over and kneeling and humbling ourselves before God, by the practice of confession, the liturgy is making no pretense of achieving perfection in this life. That's what it teaches us. It makes no pretense of achieving perfection in this life. Do you know what a Christian is? A Christian is a person who lives in a constant daily tension and struggle, who lives in conflict. Conflict between the warring desires of the Holy Spirit who is indwelling him or her and the desires of the flesh who they are in Adam. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5.17 says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. 
And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are like, these are opposed to each other. These are like two rams on animal kingdom bucking on the side of the mountain that you watch, right? They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. What do we want to do? We want to love God. We want to love our, our neighbor, our wife, our children. We want to submit to our employer. We want to give a good job in our vocations. We want to obey the law. We don't want to cut people off and have road rage, right? We don't want to live like that. And yet we find this daily conflict of two opposing rams, bucking heads, keeping us from doing the things that we really want to do. And the practice of confession teaches us that one can be a Christian and still be a sinner at the same time. To borrow Martin Luther's phrase from the Reformation that drove the medieval church mad, I like that, simul justus et peccator. What does that mean? Let me translate it. Simul is the word, English word simultaneously at the same time. Eustace is the Latin word for just or righteous. Et means and, and peccator means sinner. So this Latin phrase that Martin Luther used was saying that a Christian is simultaneously at the same time righteous or just before God and a sinner. You see, the corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated and in a state of grace, justified and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's lament that we've heard this morning, both in Galatians 5.17 and in his confession in Romans chapter 7. Let me remind you again of Paul's confession of sin from Romans chapter 7. Here in this chapter, he is confessing the shared conflict that every believer experiences every day of their life. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Why? Because I'm alive and dwell by the Spirit. I love God's law. The problem is I still can't pull it off. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death who has never felt like that? Every honest Christian can say there is something powerful in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Every honest Christian can say that. That is the confession of a true believer. And so because of this waging war, we all stumble in many ways. James chapter 3, verse 2. So well, let me give you a little news flash. Christians sin. And they sin often, and sometimes they sin really bad. 
So do not be surprised if you find it a struggle to live for Christ because that is the normal Christian life in this present world. The presence of the Holy Spirit helps through the new covenant of grace. He makes us able and willing to believe and obey. And the Holy Spirit helps. But listen carefully. The Holy Spirit, according to Paul in Galatians 5.17, also contributes to the sense of struggle and conflict and frustration that you feel every day. He creates it. Because he loves you so much, he's trying to kill you so that you can live in resurrected life. And so those who have been born again by the Spirit are new creatures in Christ already. But there's this battle of desires that continues after Christ's Spirit begins to dwell in us. The not yet, the already but not yet of our existence. And even though our sin is fully pardoned and put to death through Christ... This corruption of nature and all of his expressions are, in fact, really sin every day. The reality of this ongoing conflict is why God's gathered guests in the liturgy are called regularly to confess their sins. We could select any number of prayers of confession. I mean, I could read you a, a dozen of them from Calvin himself that he wrote for Strasbourg and Geneva but, or, or Martin Luther's, but this one comes from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. That prayer of confession are the words of a penitent believer. To be penitent is to recognize and confess our sin. And in this prayer, you'll notice that not only is the doctrine of original sin recognized, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me, uh, David confesses in Psalm 51. It not only recognizes original sin and confesses it, but it recognizes the many sins of commission and omission and confesses those as well. Let me just ask you a question. When is the last time in your Christian pilgrimage that you felt as convicted for your sins of omission as you did for your sin of commission? This prayer teaches you to feel guilty for both and to confess both. New life by the Holy Spirit produces genuine recognition and confession of sin and sorrow for it. This is at the heart of Reformed Reformation piety. This is what all the Reformers were trying to accomplish We come humbly before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness imputed to us as sinners, confessing our sin and asking for grace and mercy and great humility. So what is the liturgy teaching us? It makes no pretense of perfection in this life. When when the liturgy places us squarely in the life church community, it does so without any illusions. The corporate prayer of confession, Mark Golly says, assumes that worship takes place in a deeply flawed community. Did you hear that? 
that worship takes place in a deeply flawed community that the community constituted by the Trinity and destined for life in the kingdom is full of people who need to confess their sins and pray for one another. Our failure to love God and our neighbor as we should is why we have a time of corporate confession. So don't let being humble before God be heard as bad news for you this morning. Rather, I want you to take heart and be comforted because it is for the purpose of a general corporate confession of sin, not merely to lead God's gathered guests into the dark depths of their souls. That's not just the purpose. The purpose of confession of sin and the reading of God's law is to recognize our need for Jesus and then let that law do what it was intended to do, lead us to him. You see, by recognizing our doomed and our damned condition apart from Christ, only then are we in a position to hear and receive the comfort and assurance of the good news of the gospel. If there is no conflict in the story, there's no story. And so this brief order of confession and absolution we'll see next week functions as a summary of all that is to follow. God is present with us. He confronts us. And then after confronting, he brings his gifts of blessing and forgiveness and grace and absolution and mercy to us because absolution always follows confession. He doesn't ever leave you there to grovel in your failure. Absolution always follows confession. So let's finish with Jesus' words of comfort to you this morning. Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. And he's speaking words of blessing and comfort to those who are humbled for their sin. And he says to them, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's gift. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That is gift. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they realize they have none, for they shall be satisfied. That is a gift. The king on the mountain dispensing his gifts as the gift giver on his people who are poor in spirit, who mourn and hunger and thirst for righteousness because they realize they are empty in their sin. And he blesses them. Remember that for the poor in spirit, for the penitent believer who mourns, who confesses his or her sin, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Richard Sibbs. And so following his confession, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The Apostle Paul looks outside of himself and he looks to Christ and he declares, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you take the poor in spirit. 
that you take those who mourn over their wretched state and that you take those who are hungering and thirsting to be right before you and that you satisfy them and comfort them and speak grace and blessing and gift over them. Thank you for the gift of confession. Thank you that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the gift that you have given to us, we recognize and confess our sin, that we agree with you about your judgment towards us were it not for us to be hidden in the mercies of your Son. Hear our humble confession and give us faith to receive your absolution, your words of pardon. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We thank you, thank you, thank you for this gift. And we ask this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, John. The message you're listening to is called A Place for Confession. We'll hear part three of this message next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.